the fan. I know I'm going to get pimped. They're going to pimp me. Young Hunk. I love sausage. Thank you, Tim. Shocking. Dizzying. How did this happen? When I bring the lumber. The Tim Graham Show. I did old, uh, some poll uh, over the weekend. Right. Not me so honia. Here we go. Here we go. On Twitter at 1270TheFan. Taking your calls at 270-1270. Here we go. The Tim Graham Show. You're going to need a bigger boat. Welcome to the Tim Graham Show. February 6th, 2019, Year of Our Lord edition. Right before we come on the air, I gave myself a little sore throat spray. I can smell it. And it's cherry flavored. Yeah. I'm not saying it smells bad, but I can smell it. But Mike Rodak, my co-host, was reading the label. He was uh, impressed by this. I guess you didn't know that this stuff existed? No, I, I tend to... I feel like I'm really on top of it. I've never... I haven't had a cold in over a year. Like, I have a, a sixth sense of when one is coming on. And what I'll do is that I'll just gargle warm salt water. And it kills everything. I swear. Yeah. I need to. I need to do that. And then uh, Lisa Wilson, uh, my boss at The Athletic, while I was down in Atlanta, I was, when I started to get sick, I actually lost my voice. And uh, she was telling me that she has a remedy that was told to her by a family member who's a nurse about gargling with a mixture of uh, peroxide and hot water. Ooh. And those are types of things that I just never think to do until it's too late. Yeah, I think if you can feel it coming on, and if you can kill the virus in your throat, then all the other stuff won't get activated. All the sinus stuff and the, the cough stuff, just kill it right away. Former Sabres coach Lindy Ruff had a theory on how to get rid of uh, the flu and the cold, and that yeah. was to drink it out of your system. Well, like that works alcohol? too. Yeah, like oh, just wow. to go ahead and just get ripped and get all <laughs> as much, get your blood alcohol as, and t- have it come to go through all your organs. And that was his theory. I, I don't know how accurate that was or how much uh, science is behind Sounds that. Sounds about as scientific as bloodletting. But <laughs> leeches. So I want uh, to also uh, raise the point, though, that as Mike is looking at uh, the label, and I'm as we're about to come on the air, I say it's when you spray it in your throat, it numbs your. It numbs your coughing reflex, and his reaction was though I had said your yeah. gag reflex, right. yeah. which is not the same thing, Michael. <laughs> yeah, well, I really well. think you're wrong. You know me. <laughs> Jonah Bronstein's here. He's handling things for uh, now. He's here. Periscope, and uh, how's things going, Jonah? I, I'm hoping that you can be a big part of the show today. We're going to talk about NBA trade deadline uh, situations. And, sure. Uh, I didn't lose my voice. No, I I may need you guys to carry me a little bit. It'll be like footprints in the sand. I'm gonna look back, and there'll be <laughs> only two sets of uh, foot, three sets of, of feet. Yeah. Is it footprints or feet prints? <laughs> How about footprints? Footprint. <laughs> Getting into an argument about that. Instead of four sets of feet prints, <laughs> there'll be only three sets of feet prints because when I look back, it, that is when you guys were carrying me. Mike read. can carry you. I'll just talk on the air. All right. You're going to read the New Testament later? I'm not against it. Okay. I prefer the old one. <laughs> of course, Jonah. <laughs> yeah, well. So uh, I want to get into a story that I wrote uh, last week for The Athletic, and it uh, generated quite a bit of interest on both sides. And I think some of the an initial reaction had to do with the fact that there was Siberian in the headline. It was talking about the Siberian stigma of Buffalo and free agency. 
The Bills have $83, $84 million to spend. I'm going off the spot track uh, estimate. Now, based on what they rolled over, where are we? It's the same. It's all that's all been based off the same number. Right. It's so gonna be right in the eighty eighty range. Yeah, eighty four roughly. I even asked Brandon Bean about it one day because I said, "Look, I'm going off this estimate. What estimate are you going off of?" And he said, uh, "Low, low to mid eighties." Right. So he, he they don't even have an exact number at the Bills because they may sign uh, somebody. They might sign John Miller, and that'll change things. I mean, right. before they get the free agency, things could change a little bit. Yeah, but, there's the carryover. There's also incentives in, in guys' deals from last season that weren't counting against the cap last season, but then they hit the incentives, and now they need to count against the cap this year. So those are all adjustments that get made, and then eventually right. March 11th when the league year starts, or 13th when the league year starts, that's when the official it's number comes out. a lot of money, and it's the third most in the NFL behind the Indianapolis Colts and the New York Jets. And so what I did when I was down at the Pro Bowl is I talked to as many star players as I could to get their thoughts on what Buffalo's reputation is as a market, as a locale, as to where you'd want to go play. Yeah. I talked to some non-free agents because – then they don't have to feel like they need to be diplomatic because they're not thinking, well, I don't want to say anything bad about Buffalo because they, they might, might be making me. me an offer. And then I talked to some of the free agents like Anthony Barr and D. Ford, uh, Demarcus Lawrence, and just to get their impressions on Buffalo and what they're going to have to deal with. So they have 83 point whatever million dollars roughly to spend, but that doesn't mean people are going to be lining up to take it. So a lot of Bills fans are waiting for the for their team just to go out and start throwing stacks of cash around and let's see who we get we're going to get all these star players because we have it to spend well it's not that easy and the, so the story which uh, I posted on the athletic last week and it had the word Siberian in the headline Siberian stigma meaning it's an outpost not necessarily because of weather uh, and a lot of people saw the headline and said well what about Green Bay what about Minnesota what about well it's not that simple it's not just weather uh, and of course, Buffalo at the time yeah, that this story was posted was uh, in a whiteout conditions and uh, <laughs> minus twenty five or yeah. whatever it was. Um, but no, it's about the small market. It's about the idea that people, whether it's true or not, believe that there's nothing to do in Buffalo. That um, they've seen coaches quit, like Doug Marone, and even going back a ways, uh, Mike Malarkey. Uh, they've seen, uh, they know that there's this reputation out there. The taxes that New York is the fifth uh, highest among, for states that have an NFL team, New York is the fifth highest. So, yeah, you can look at Indianapolis as number one most amount of money to spend and say they're a team on the rise that just went to the playoffs and have the franchise quarterback. The New York Jets are number two. Well, they're not very good, but New York speaks for itself, the Big Apple, and you're staying in New Jersey, which is a higher tax rate, but... It's New York market. You can make more off of endorsements and whatever. There's more to do, more for your family to do. And then there's Buffalo, which is has the quarterback, which is a big plus for them, and that's what the story gets into, whether you're talking about hiring a coach or getting a player. All the players I talked to said how important it is that there's a quarterback in place, even defensive players like Demarcus Lawrence and D. Ford and Anthony Barr, that the quarterback is huge in making a decision as to what you want to do with yourself. Olivier Vernon, a native of Miami who played for the University of Miami, who played for the Miami Dolphins, went to the New York Giants 
And he said because Eli Manning was there. The guy won two Super Bowls. So he's going to give up living in South Florida where there's no state tax to go play for the New York Giants because of the quarterback. So there's a lot that goes into this stew of a free agent's decision. And so I wanted to bring it up because I think it's uh, – it's an interesting discussion, and I think it's the, these are the types of things that people who follow the Bills and live in western New York kind of know, but I felt it was important to put it all in one story, especially while we're on the doorstep of this big free agency period, as to what do athletes really think of the idea of playing in Buffalo. And it's a good idea, and I think that there was a groundswell, if that's the right word, like towards the end of last season, once it was clear last season was going nowhere for the bills but then there was this hope and the numbers started getting thrown around about the cap space that they'll have this off season and i think there was like a growing level of excitement and anticipation among fans that there was going to be some huge off season here comes antonio brown here comes Le'Veon bell aj come- green yeah as a you know, trade candidate Chalk him up. right Golden but Tate. you know that they were going to be the most active team in the league and i remember Seeing a lot of that, and when I did my season-ending analysis, I, I dug up one of Brandon Bean's quotes from his introductory press conference where he said, you won't see big splashes of free agency. This is a team that uh, I want to build through the draft. And indeed, when he came out the day after the season, it was Brandon Bean sending that message, and Sean McDermott to some extent too, that uh, calculated was the word that they used several times. And then we saw it again. You know, we, we've had a month now to digest the season, and I think fans' excitement has, has continued to rise. But then we had the Brandon Bean letter that he sent, or the Bills sent this week, to their season ticket holders that reiterated a lot of his points that he made in the season-ending press conference that they want to be calculated in free agency, active, uh, but not, you know, just fl- – uh, you know, sending out money to anybody who who might come along, and I think and I think that's a, an important piece of marketing slash right. PR for it's a team to do. It may be one of the most important things that a t- that a front office can do is setting out a message that um, that molds expectations. Yes, uh, for your off season. I thought that the Bills did it very well last year. There was no talk about yeah, we're going back to the playoffs. You better believe this is our standard now. They were talking at hey we we may slip back a little bit we may not be as good but we'll be getting better if that makes a you know it's the whole idea of growth we may not be as good in terms of record in 2018 but we're going to be uh, setting the stage for vaster you know for vast improvement right yeah, moving forward and growth right so I think that that was what that letter going out right. to the season ticket and it was reported on and you know people it was it wasn't just. The audience wasn't just the season ticket holders. It went out to everybody, and Western New York media uh, reported it. And I think that was a brilliant piece of PR. It was preemptive. And I I think there was some sort of Twitter poll. I I wish I remember who it was, but I saw it this week. And somebody essentially asked, you know, what is your reaction to that letter? And it was some random fan, I think, that tweeted back and said, the Bills are on a five-year plan. When I thought a lot, when I think a lot of fans saw them being on a three-year plan, meaning, you know, this is a longer-term thing than some fans might have thought. This being year three, this being the year everybody thought, okay, they're going to make the the run. I, it's not, and I think the Bills are wise to to hold back there, um, and I think fans are wise to to look at 
the teams that surround the Bills and cap space. I mean, the numbers we have at ESPN have the Bills at 80.7 million in cap space, the Browns, Jets, and Colts being above that. Well, aside from even the the tax reasons or the city lifestyle living, um, lifestyle of, of those cities, the Browns have a better quarterback, I think, at this point, or a more exciting, a more a quarterback with more hope, I would say, in Baker Mayfield. I mean, didn't win rookie of the year, but a lot of people thought he should. I don't think Josh Allen was seen in that discussion, his injury or not. Um, Sam Darnold, I, he's probably on the same level as Josh Allen, I, I think, in, in most fans' minds right now, but potentially could be a better quarterback. He was a higher pick. And then Andrew Luck with the Colts. And then you go the other direction, teams that have less cap space. I mean, the Raiders, Derek Carr, I mean, that's a mess out there. But then you have Deshaun Watson with the Texans at $65 million. You have Jimmy Garoppolo with the 49ers at $63 million. You have Russell Wilson with the Seahawks at 53. There's a lot of teams out there with a lot of cash and probably better quarterback situations if that's one way that players are going to judge this. I'm not so sure. I think this is a little bit different than maybe in the NBA. I don't know how many of these players go out there and pick the best football situation as much as, I think more so than just about any other sport, it's the amount of guaranteed money they can get in free agency. Now, I don't necessarily expect the Bills to be outbidding teams for free agents. I don't think they're going to come really that close to spending $80 million in cap room this offseason. Agree. But if they wanted to, I think they could. It would only take a little bit of just meeting the agent's demand. I mean, the agent really has a responsibility not to steer his client to the team that's offering less money but has a better quarterback. And one of the other things to remember here is that just because you have cap money or salary cap space to spend doesn't mean that there are free agents out there. I mean, it's not a great year for wide receiver free agents. Maybe it is if you're trading for one. I mean, the slow roll is smart on a couple of levels. Number one, it builds for the for the long term better. Now, there are times when maybe you have a situation where you're the New Orleans Saints. Uh, well, that's a bad example because the they, they they're constantly, uh, as the the quote was uh, in my story, pushing out the credit card to keep paying for the future because they have Drew Brees and they're going to keep trying to go for a Super Bowl for as long as they can because we'll pay we'll pay off all our debt when we get the next quarterback when we're building on the young guy and we we're taking our lumps. Um, well, the Rams are maybe a little bit right. different example, but they leverage their cap space to be good now. And they can't really keep all these guys together long term, but the, they were able to right. figure it out now. The Bills are in a situation where they're in the division with the Super Bowl champs. And Tom Brady has said he's not going to retire. There's a 0% chance he's going to retire. So why why amass a stockpile of talent and big contracts now when you still maybe, at let's say you gun for it this year or next, what's your chance of making the playoffs What's your chance of winning the division? Let's even say it's 50-50 seems ambitious. And then getting in a wild card spot, it's tough. So why, why gamble for the chance of a smaller, uh, with the small chance of a, a playoff uh, payoff? And so go for the slower roll to where you're ready in 2020 now, or 2021. You're making the big push and you're building and you have 
a lot more flexibility all along the way to build with the pieces that you want, to keep the guys, to re-sign the guys, uh, to have met that many more draft classes stacked up on top of each other with your own guys that are under your rookie contracts and not free agent deals. So I think the the aspect of the Patriots still very much being the Patriots, as much as everybody, and I'm not going to go buy into the whole thing about how everybody was counting them out and all that stuff. That's that's all, you know, that was all hocus-pocus, uh, billboard-type stuff just to get them extra motivated. They were favored to win that game. Um, but I do think that the there's, a, there's this belief, because they've been around for so long, that maybe this is going to be the year that Tom Brady finally falls off. Or maybe this will be the year when he gets hurt finally and decides that it's not worth trying to come back. Well, it doesn't seem like we're any closer to that heading into 2019 than we were heading into 2014. So you may there's no no rush to to throw a ton of money around to make the Bills a Super Bowl contender or try to buy some sort of Super Bowl um caliber team just because just because they happen to have the money. There's just there's too many variables, too much talent within the division. And there's two Many holes. It's going to take more than one offseason to rebuild, specifically the off the offense. But really, all the holes the Bills have, they can't just fill them all with this free agent market and this draft and think next year they're going to have a complete team. It's going to take more than that. So you, they probably want to save as much cap space as they can for the following year, while you know getting players they like because they can't bring back all of the bums that they had starting for them this year. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that's bums. that's what their goal is and. I think they're right in doing this is they want to save that money for the young guys who they'll need to re-sign. And after next, this upcoming season, the 2019 season, they can re-sign both Tredavious White and Matt Milano. Milano will be entering the last year of his deal. White will have another year on top of that because of the the fifth-year option as a first-round pick. So he would be less likely to sign right away. But they can sign those guys starting right after this season. That's, I think, where they would want to spend that money on young guys coming into their, into their next deals. But I think one thing that's important to remember is despite all the goodwill that Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott have built up, and a lot of it's deserved, doesn't mean that they're immune from the same mistakes of the past. I mean, Marv Levy, when he came back in 2006, went out and signed Derek Dockery and um, Langston Walker because they needed to fix the O-line, and it was money that was very poorly spent in free agency that offseason. Buddy Nix in, in 2012 trying to fix the pass rush. They go out and sign Mario Williams and Mark Anderson, and that was an abject failure. As good as Mario was for a couple of years, he wasn't worth anywhere near $100 million. And, that and that's was, proof about how if you want that player, you have to overspend. And, right. But and, there was another layer to that. that. I think there was some aspect of proving that you could get a good player to come here, that Ralph Wilson would pay – the it most was a psychological boost. Player. And the other thing, too, is I think it did work. I wouldn't say it's an abject failure because that defense was pretty good. And, and with whether but it was Patton or Schwartz, so much I agree. Space with, with Mario I agree. for a long time. I agree because they thought they, had, they were right. going to get their quarterback, and they obviously never did. And going after E.J. Manuel when they did really painted him in a corner. But that situation, which I also mentioned in my story and I got into, and uh, is a very significant point to make is you can sell the player on Buffalo. All those things that we talked about earlier, small market, nothing to do, the taxes, um, the weather, all the different stigmas that you can overcome. You still have to sell the wife-slash-girlfriend on it. 
you still have to sell the advisor on it, your financial advisor, who's saying, okay, you can go to Buffalo uh, or you can go to Nashville where they have zero state tax and you and get hooked up with all these car dealerships or whatever's going on in a much bigger market or at least a much more dynamic market. I don't think Nashville's necessarily that much bigger than Buffalo, but it is it's you know, up and coming. It's yeah. and it's a it's an entertainment right. capital. Um, there's all kinds of things that go into but that the other people you can convince the player and uh and Buddy Nick's mentioned to me there were two coaches that they thought they had on the hook to come to Buffalo and the wives wouldn't go for it. Now, we know Mike Shanahan's been on the record. I couldn't get Buddy to tell me who the other one was. Uh, but Mike Shanahan was on the record as saying when that year that the Bills hired Chan Gailey, he would have taken the job, but his wife said no. Um, so it's I'm just to think. those are the things you have to deal with when you're no. Buffalo. Well, Sean Payton was before then. I remember Sean Payton telling me one time at the owners' meetings, sitting at the bar, and he's telling me I, I would have gone to Buffalo. It was, must have been 2006 when they hired um, – Duran. Dick Duran, yeah. He said he flew up here and they interviewed him and they didn't hire him. They hired Dick Duran instead. Um, but I, I think one thing that's important to note before the break is the best way for the Bills to spend their, their cap space, given the free agent market this offseason, might be on defense. It's much like the draft where the top of the draft is very heavy on defensive ends, defensive tackles. So is free agency. Demarcus Lawrence. I'm going through the top. Probably going to get a franchise tag. Right. Maybe not. Some of these guys will. But Maybe not. in terms of the top 10 free agents from Kevin Seifert on ESPN.com, uh, number one is Demarcus Lawrence. Number three is D. Ford. Number four is Jadavion Clowney. Number five is Frank Clark. Pass rushers, all pass rushers. Number nine is Trey Flowers from the Patriots. So five out of the top 10 are pass rushers. And we can talk about this the Bills more later. But the Bills do need one. As good as Jerry Hughes has been, he's entering the last year of his deal, he's 30 years old. Shaq Lawson, as better as he got this season, entering the last year of his deal, unlikely to get that fifth-year option. Trent Murphy, big question mark. This would be an ideal time for the Bills to address that position, whether it's through free agency, whether it's using that top-ten pick, or in a combination thereof, potentially, don't shoot me for saying this, but trading Jerry Hughes and trying to get a an asset for him if you're not going to re-sign him after this season, get something for him now and then replace him with a younger player or younger players through free agency and through the draft. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk to the Athletics' John Vogel. We're going to talk about last night's Sabres game, a crazy victory over the Minnesota Wild, and tomorrow night's game against the Carolina Hurricanes, where the Sabres are heading into the playoff hunt down the home stretch here as we go. Uh, maybe a little trade deadline talk, uh, whether the Sabres should be sellers or buyers. Uh, so John Vogel and more when we come back here on the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by Viola Cummings and Lindsay, your workers' compensation and personal injury attorneys. Call 285-9555. Visit them on the web at violacummingslindsay.com. This is the Tim Graham Show on Sports Radio 1270, The Fan. Is the Tim Graham Show? Sports Radio. Tim Brown still a free agent. This is Sports Radio 1270, The Fan. All right, welcome back to the Tim Graham Show here on Sports Radio 1270, The Fan. Buffalo Sabers. 
It's been a turbulent run for them ever since their 10-game winning streak and made it seem like they were a playoff shoe-in. People are even starting to talk about Stanley Cup. No. Sabres were in first place in the entire NH freaking L. And now they're on the outside looking in of a playoff uh, berth with, what is it? Let me do some quick math here. 26, 46, 52. 30 games to play as they head into tomorrow night's game against the Carolina Hurricanes, a team that they haven't beat in the last two seasons. The game is at Key Bank Center. Maybe that'll help them out. With us now is the athletic Sabres reporter, John Vogel. And there's nobody else I want to hear about the state of the Sabres, the realism of postseason play for these guys, buying, selling at the trade deadline, what they should do. Uh, then John Vogel. Thanks for joining us, John. Well, thanks for the compliment, Tim. It's always a pleasure to be on. I like that quick math you did. I don't know what numbers you were throwing out there, but it was fun to listen to. <laughs> I think it's right. I think they're at 58 it, it points is. through 52 games, which isn't all that swift. Right. Now they have 30 games left, so uh, going to be uh, the fun part is at least they're interesting. As bad as things have been for the last couple of months, we're at a point in mid-February where for the first time in three, four years, games actually mean a little something, so that's good. What do we make of this team? Where they stand now? Is is there is it a moving target, John, when it comes to assessing what this team is, where they are in terms of the grand scheme of things? I don't mean just uh, the playoff picture, but where they are as a building organization, uh, working towards something. Uh, is but it seems to change um day to day almost or game to game i should say but generally speaking it's been depressing for about a month and a half yeah for two months they have been the uh, second worst team in the nhl um they gave themselves a nice little cushion with that 10 game winning streak and they've uh dropped that cushion right in the uh right on the floor and stepped on it and had fallen right out of the playoff spot um so yeah the last two months have been rough um but still they're only three points out um, they're going, they got seven games at home here. They've played two. Um, this is the big stretch though. I mean, if they, uh, these next five games at home, if they don't go well, uh, I think you're going to have to see a uh, seller's, uh, seller's mode at the deadline later this month. Um, cause there's too many good teams ahead of them that just keep winning. And, uh, if they home is where they've been racking up their points this year. And if they drop any of these five, well, if they drop most of these five, it's just not a good sign for this team. Mm-hmm. Where are you with certain aspect or certain parts of the team? I guess I, I shouldn't uh, dehumanize uh, players by calling them parts, but uh, we're talking about buying and selling here at the deadline. What are the parts that get moved uh, if they do decide uh, that they want to sell and uh, take uh, take another uh, breather uh, for this uh, for the rest of the season and concentrate on the next season? Um, it, it, it will be interesting to watch uh, what Jason Botterill does. It depends. Uh, you can move a guy like Nathan Boyu, who's not playing, and get a sixth-round pick for him. Um, but if you want to do some real changes on this team, which I think uh, at the moment you're going to have to do some real changes, you can move a guy like Jake, uh, same position, uh, but instead of Nathan Boyu, you move a Jake McCabe or a Brendan Gooley, uh, and then you can get some better parts in here for uh, for them and get a – get a real forward who's NHL ready right now rather than a late round pick or a fringe prospect. Uh, they've got enough of those kind of guys. They need to get some real forwards in here, some real wingers who can uh, 
compliment Jack Eichel other than uh, Jeff uh, Jeff Skinner and Sam Reinhart. Um, they just need some. They just need some real scoring. Um, what's been really hurting them lately um, is just the just the defense. There's too many guys wide open in front for tapping goals. Uh, I know Carter Hutton uh, has come under fire from a lot of angles lately. Just uh, just for his record, since the ten game winning streak, he's only three nine and two. Um, but I was talking to a fellow goalie the other day, and he's like, "What do you want him to do?" There's three, there's uh, three times a game he's facing a two-on-one, and there's a guy standing in front of the net, and that's just uh, no goalie's going to stop those repeatedly. So that's the one area they really have to, really have to tighten up. I mean, Phil Housley mentions every day checking detail, checking detail, and while we don't like hearing it every day, just because we'd rather get some different answers, it is really what they need to fix. Well, John, uh, I just want to check real quick, because uh, I, I think everything's okay, but uh, maybe you've heard more today. Linus Allmark, at the end of that shootout last night, uh, seemed to uh, be in trouble. He skated straight off the ice, didn't do any of the celebration, maybe got shaken up on that last uh, attempt uh, by Minnesota. Is there any update or any concern on Linus Allmark, since we're talking about no, goalies? Yeah, no, he practiced today, so he's fine. He said he felt fantastic last night. Uh, that was partially sarcasm, but just because they had won. Um, but no, he, uh, yeah, he was shaken up, but he was fine by the time he talked to us last night and he was on the ice today. So, uh, no, it doesn't seem to be any worries there. And what about Jason Palmanville as far as the, uh, the trade deadline goes? That'll be an interesting move. Um, he's obviously, they brought him back to the feel good story. Um, and he still can produce when he's alongside Jack Eichel, which is where he is. He is again, um, They've been apart for a while. They put them together during the third period last year. Phil Housley liked it. They were on the same line again today. Um, so for at least the start of the game tomorrow, Palmer will be back alongside Eichel. Um, so that that's an interesting move. I don't know how much market there is for for a guy like Palmerville for for a lot of these teams. Um, but uh, that is one thing. In the next two weeks, like I said, after these uh, after this little home stretch, if they uh, if it goes well, I don't think they move him at all. And if it doesn't go well, well, then maybe they start asking for offers for him. And what do you make of some of the line changes that they made going into uh, the wild game on, on Tuesday night? And like you said, it sort of reversed a little bit later in that game. And just what do you expect going forward there? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I knew as I, I wrote a uh, on, on Monday afternoon, I spent a few hours writing about uh, just the line changes, what the benefits would be. Uh, to these new lines, and I did it knowing that it wouldn't last the whole game. I kind of knew I was wasting some time there, but whatever, because, uh, yeah, two periods in, so how we switched everything up. Um, so at the moment, uh, it's back to Jeff Skinner alongside Jack Eichel, which I don't think they'll change that again. Uh, it's not, it just doesn't seem, there's no reason to. Both of them can score without a, without the other, but they just connect so well that it seems like that's uh that's the pair they got to stick with for now, and I think we're going to see a little rotation on the right side with Pommonville and Reinhardt. Uh, I'd like to see Tage Thompson, the youngster in there, gets a shot, but he was an he was an extra among the four lines. So for some reason, it looks like he's going to sit tomorrow when a guy like Vladimir Sabatka, who's at 36 games and counting without a goal, is still in the lineup. But uh, so yeah, I think for now we're going to see Eichel and Skinner work their all star all star magic for a little while again. John, during the 10-game winning streak earlier in the year when the Sabres were playing well, there was a lot of talk about how much the culture had changed, how different things were from maybe specifically last year but the last few years since the tank started. Now that they're not playing as well, losing more often, 
Do you still notice changes? Are the vibes in the room any different than previous Sabres teams that were struggling? Yes, uh, good question. But, yeah, they are still a tighter group, Um, a group that cares, a group that wants to win, which is not how it was uh, previous years. Um, and the one thing about the culture difference, I'm a, I'm a big believer in culture for, first of all, just uh, having seen it, uh, develop and fall apart in these locker, in this locker room through the last 17 seasons. But the one thing is the culture got them off to a good start, but just the lack of overall talent is what's really caught up to them. Um, these guys still like each other. It's just the fact that you have a rookie center on the second line and Casey Middlestad who went through a rough stretch for a while. He's been playing better since, uh, the all-star break ended. Um, so that's a good sign for the Sabres. But then you, like I said, you have a third line with a center who hasn't scored since November. Uh, so that's going to hurt you no matter whether guys get along or not. So uh, the one thing, if they are going to stick around, they're definitely going to have to upgrade the talent. We're in conversation with John Vogel, Sabres reporter for the athletic. And John, where are we? Do you think, and this also seems like a moving target, the assessment of the Ryan O'Reilly trade, and Jonah just brought up the culture aspect of things, and a couple of months ago, fans were giddy over the Ryan O'Reilly trade. Ha-ha, we got rid of this guy, addition by subtraction, look at where we are now. And then, yeah, look at where we are now, as in Ryan O'Reilly, with over a point per game, he's got 53 points in 51 games, by far and away St. Louis's most productive player, uh, 17 points ahead of uh, Vladimir Tarasenko, who's next in scoring for them. Now, St. Louis hasn't had a rousing season, uh, but Ryan O'Reilly seems like he's been a productive player. Uh, where uh, Do we have Ryan O'Reilly remorse yet? Uh, no, he had to move. Um, can't go into all the details about it, but it just from the reason there is a better culture uh, is because he's not around. Obviously, when you're, as I mentioned, Casey Middle, the stats struggled centering the second line. So when that happens, there are going to be people who say, oh, we could have this guy putting these points up. Um, and it was never really about that with uh, Ryan O'Reilly. Yes, he would, the Sabres would have a better center, but I don't think the uh, they'd have a better team with him here. Um, so I don't think, while I understand there could be remorse out there, um, I don't think that there should be. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what's next? For the Sabers, we talk about uh, you know whether they're going to sell or buy in general, and obviously the record is going to uh, play a big part of that. But John, we're, you're around this team a lot. What's your general sense of if this team has it in them to overcome and, and become a playoff uh, contender, or if what we've seen over the last two months uh, continues? Uh, I think if they add the right pieces, uh, get a little, get a veteran center who can do some, who can do, uh, do something. If they get a winger who can complement, uh, whoever that center is or make, uh, Casey Middlestad a little better. If they do those two moves, uh, I think they can remain in this playoff race and even make it. Uh, you look at the team right ahead of them, uh, at the moment. That's Columbus Blue Jackets. They're about to lose Artemi Panarin, I believe. Uh, Sergei Lebrassi could be traded while they'll obviously bring people in. Uh, for those two stars, they're, they're still going to impact the locker room quite a bit and impact the on-ice product. So I think Buffalo, if they do add the two right pe- or two or three of the right pieces, um, they can make a move uh, back into a playoff spot. Um, it's just going to, it's going to take, they're going to have to give up something to get something. They can't give out Nathan Beaulieu and expect to make the playoffs. They're going to have to give up a prospect like a Brendan Gooley or move a regular guy who, like Jake McCabe. 
Um, that's the only way they're going to uh, improve the team enough to make the playoffs. Do you think they're definitely buyers, or are they more, maybe like we were talking about with the Bills on a slower rebuild? I think uh, I think Jason Bowder realizes he has to be a buyer at the moment. Uh, Jeff Skinner, while he's still pitching team, uh, so far I haven't heard any uh, drawbacks in their talks about whether he stays here long term or not. But you want to show a guy while you are suited. Uh, um, going after him that yeah we do want to make this team better and we will do things to make things better and i think that's what this month is about he's uh the sabers still uh while they are moving up they're not quite there yet and they they need a few moves and they need uh, the gm to show that they're, he's going to make those moves the sabers just for the record three points out of the wild card spot right now behind those columbus blue jackets that john just mentioned they are tied with uh, Carolina, although they have a game in hand, uh, Carolina also has 58 points. So tomorrow night's game uh, could determine whether or not the Sabres are just one team out of the wild card hunt or two teams out of the wild card hunt. And John, as a lot of we we seem to have this discussion almost every year, it's not the number of points that you're out of the hunt; it's the number of teams that are in between you and the last spot in the hunt that I think is way more crucial than just the sheer number of points because when teams start getting in there and more and more start slipping in between you and that last uh, playoff spot, uh, those seem to be harder to overcome than the, than the, than just the raw points. Oh, for sure. Yeah. They have to stay away. They have to stay ahead of Carolina uh, by winning tomorrow. And important the reason that it is troublesome to move ahead of people who, who pass you is just the, uh, so many points are out there. I mean, Three points in every game. Late in the season, it seems every game goes to overtime, so someone's going to get a point. That means you got to win. Um, and right now, Buffalo, is uh, that is the one thing they're hurting in, is regulation and overtime wins, which is one of the tiebreakers for playoff spots. Uh, they only have 22, um, while Columbus has 29 and Carolina has 25. So if those teams all tied for eighth spots, Sabres would finish in 10th because they wouldn't have enough uh regulation overtime wins so yeah that's what's important not only is it important for them to stay ahead of carolina tomorrow it's important to win in regulation or overtime too john vogel sabers reporter for the athletic thanks for joining us john and and breaking down the team and where they stand uh, not only in terms of the playoff hunt but also as an organization and where they are in their big rebuild in the grand scheme of things Uh, always great to have you on and have your perspective Always talk, good talking to you, my friend. All righty. John Vogel, thanks for joining us. The Tim Graham Show is brought to you by Viola Cummings and Lindsay, your workers' compensation and personal injury attorneys. Call 285-9555. Visit them on the web at violacummingslindsay.com. When we come back, we're going to talk about what lessons the Bills can learn from the New England Patriots about building their offensive line. Some pretty uh, intriguing aspects of that Patriots offensive line, which did not give up a sack in the entire postseason. Amazing. And uh, the Bills... Uh, one in the Super Bowl. I'm think. sorry, one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Going into the Super Bowl, zero, which and then they did give up one. Remarkable. And uh, when you take a look at the construct of that Patriots offensive line, you look at it and say, well, the Bills could do that. And we're also going to talk NBA trade deadline with Jonah Bronstein. We'll also get into some college hoops when we come back on the Tim Graham Show here on Sports Radio 1270, The Fan. 
The Tim Graham Show. Oh, that's trash, young lady. No, you can't. Hey, stop that, young lady! What kind of question is that? There's some kind of a nut or something. The Tim Graham Show, Sports Radio 1270, The Fan. Because what I'm looking for is something, I'm going to pop the old stuff out and put my stuff in it. <laughs> the Tim Graham Show. Anywho. Sports Radio 1270, The Fan. Welcome back to the Tim Graham Show here on Sports Radio 1270, The Fan. That cough drop was rattling around my mouth a little bit. Had to get rid of it. I'm struggling. I got a. I'm used half a bottle of this sore throat spray. Jonah Bronstein's here from Jonah Bronstein LLC. Here with uh, usual co-host Mike Rodak of ESPN.com, Bobby Rosati, Diddle in the Knobs. Brad Ryder did a good job last week, I thought. Yeah. I didn't listen to the entire show. I listened to probably 75% of it. A lot of Tyree Jackson talk. <laughs> yeah. A lot. A lot Tyree of Tyree Jackson. Jackson talk. But what else was there to talk about? It's so, not much. It's the his Bowl. love and his pet peeve at the same time, Tyree was. so Kind of fit into a couple conversations. Sure. <laughs> Well, he's an important player. He's a quarterback yeah. and uh, from UB, and if a quarterback can make it out of UB, that would be pretty big for the program. Number eight on uh, the latest Mel Kuyper big board that came out. Not Sorry, number eight quarterback yeah, was that say, came out this week. Number eight. But, hey, maybe he can move up one slot. Kyler Murray, if he uh, reports to A's spring training next week, then that will obviously uh, not be a good sign as far as him in the draft, so that could move uh, – Tyree up the board. Do you know, uh, Mike, if Mel was listening to the show and maybe moved Tyree up because of what Brad said? Probably. I mean, I think Brad was making some good arguments that why not? You know, that was basically his argument. Why not put him in the first round? What is What do the other quarterbacks have over him um, that Tyree doesn't have? Dane Brugler of The Athletic, I'm uh, checking him out uh, to see where he has Tyree Jackson. and his. Uh, he's not in the top 50, but uh, that doesn't uh, say where he ranks among all quarterbacks. But Yeah, I still think he's a, maybe a day two pick at best, probably day three, I think is, is probably the sweet spot for him, early in day three. So I want to talk a little NBA basketball today. Jonah Bronstein, he's our resident uh, hoop head, hoople head. He's a long time ago. Wow. Throwback. NBA jam music would also be acceptable for something Ooh, like this. I completely. I don't even great. recognize this. It must be that old. This is old CBS. What is this, like old yeah, CBS? That, yeah. Yeah. CBS college basketball. What about uh, the video game Arch Rivals? Do you guys ever play that? I That's remember the one where it you could punch. Vaguely. Like you could just a guy'd be dribbling down. It was two on two, and you pick the players, and they all had different traits. Some one was a sharpshooter, the other guy was just a thug. Uh, there was one guy who was tough on rebounds and inside game, and one guy could jump real high. Arcade game. I also lost a lot of quarters uh, in there at uh, Baldwin Wallace College. Yeah, I remember it, but I mean that was probably. Six, seven years old. I don't remember the details. But it's interesting that NBA Jam, early on, all these basketball video games were all two-on-two 
you couldn't play five on five basketball as a video game, and I now they don't make these kind of games anymore. Yeah, because it cluttered up the court because of the graphics weren't. Uh, I think it, it just yeah. made it a little too difficult. There was a college basketball game for Super Nintendo, maybe that I played. That was five on five. We're talking like mid nineties. There was a Coach K game. Is that the one you're talking about? Oh, man, I don't know. I would have to look it up. Five people could play at once. No, but it was like there was five people on the oh, court for I each see what team. You're I'm pretty okay. sure. Got I mean, it. we're going back to. Rodak and diapers, but um, so like 2015, right? Yeah, we're not digging too deep there. No pun intended. All right, Jonah, what's happening in the basketball? What what gets your juices flowing with these trades? Well, the big story is the Anthony Davis trade that may or may not happen. I think at this point, it's more likely that it won't happen. There was a big trade overnight. Uh, 76ers traded for Tobias Harris from the Clippers. That'll make them a little bit better, position them as maybe the favorites in the East, at least closer to being the favorites than they were. Still my favorite team. A lot of fun to watch, the 76ers. Yeah, and now they have – Harris is a borderline all-star with three bonafide all-star players. Jimmy Butler's not in the game this year, but he's been an all-star. And it gives them – they don't have much depth, and they're not going to have money to add players once they re-sign all these guys, but they have maybe the best starting five outside of the Warriors in basketball right now. I just find the Warriors monotonous. They're so good, and they shooting all those threes. I just when I sit down to watch a game, I want to see at least a little variety. You know, I want to see some great dunks. I want to see some inside play. I want to see some dribble drive. You know, well they get to the rim, and they they haven't been as extreme as maybe Houston this year, Milwaukee, some of these other teams that only take layups and threes and and. You know, Houston will take all threes if you let them. And the Warriors, Steve Kerr has pushed them to be more of a complete team passing the ball, but they have such incredible three-point shooters. And I think Steph Curry started to realize, maybe not started to, but as his career has gotten longer, he's realized the more threes I can get up, the better. Uh, So good at making them, making them at such a high clip that if I only take five a game, I'm not helping the team as much as if I took 15 a game. What about Toronto and the trade uh, market? What are we looking at for the Raptors? They're considered a dark horse for Anthony Davis. They could give up some young players and some picks and then have a real core, and if they win the title, maybe Davis and Kawhi Leonard resign. Aside from that, you know, there was rumors that they were involved in trying to trade for Marc Gasol, Mike Conley from Memphis. Right, I was going to ask you about Conley. Yeah. looked like he played his last game for Minnesota last night, and well, he was treating it as such. Yeah, he might get traded, although the stronger rumors are that Gasol will get traded, and they actually held him out of the game in anticipation of a potential trade to Charlotte, which I don't think has come through yet, and maybe that's falling apart. Uh, the Grizzlies are rebuilding. Conley's 31, which isn't old, but a little bit old for a rebuilding team. He's got a big contract. But we're getting down to it. The deadline's tomorrow. Some of these moves that look like they were going to happen haven't happened yet. I'm not so sure what team really is going to trade for Mike Conley. Do you have anything in your mind of what would be the most fun trade just for the sake of let's see what happens here with this? Kyrie. Well, that would be interesting. The Celtics could trade Kyrie so that they would be able to bring in Anthony Davis. Mm -hmm. The most fun trade, I think the Porzingis trade last week was pretty fun, the reaction to it and kind of seeing the Knicks reverse course the way they did. Anthony Davis getting traded anywhere but the Lakers would be interesting to see how that works out on a team that maybe he doesn't really want to go to, won't be staying long. But he's not a free agent this year, so he can't walk away immediately. But at the same time, as much as it's a little bit on CD what LeBron's agents and the Lakers are trying to do, 
But it would be pretty interesting to see LeBron with another star in L.A. You know, they're out of the playoffs right now. I do think they're going to sneak back in there. LeBron hasn't been playing, but if the playoffs started today, I think they're two games out of the eighth spot. And seeing LeBron fight for a playoff spot, be an eighth seed or a seventh seed, with the team he has now, I don't think they can beat one of the top two teams in the first round of the playoffs. But LeBron and Anthony Davis and Carmelo Anthony and any other veteran buyout guys they can add, that would be very interesting. Lonzo Ball, what happens to him? He, I think they want to trade him. Well, They want to get veterans and superstars, and they're willing to give up just about any of their young players. Brandon Ingram's their most prized young player. Maybe Kyle Kuzma second, Lonzo Ball third. I think Lonzo Ball, LeVar Ball has started saying he wants Lonzo to be on the uh, Phoenix Suns. I'm going to speak it into existence. (coughs) Speak it into existence is what he said. And I kind of think that might happen. I think there's a good fit for him on uh, the Suns. I don't know if it happens at this trade deadline right now because what the Lakers now probably do is keep all of their young assets, make another run at Anthony Davis in the offseason. That's why the Pelicans aren't making this trade right now because they can get Boston involved in the bidding. They can see who wins the lottery. They think they can get better offers in the offseason. And everybody the Lakers are willing to give up, which is pretty much every young player they've drafted over the years and multiple picks, will still be on the table in the offseason when the Pelicans go back to trying to trade Anthony Davis. How do the Denver Nuggets have the same record? Essentially, they have one more loss than the Golden State Warriors. Denver Nuggets have good players. Nikola but they're, Jokic, not, they're not the Warriors. Like, there's they're a huge not difference. the Warriors, but they are, they are a good team. Nikola Jokic is one of the best big men in the NBA. Passing, rebounding, scoring, shooting. It's not necessarily a big shot blocker type, but offensively, he's a superstar. They have good players around them. They don't really have stars playing with Jokic. I think they're in the mix to try to trade for another star. And they have a good coach. They pretty much have the same team back from last year. They're a deep team. The chemistry, all all the intangible things that sort of the opposite of what LeBron's trying to do in L.A. and what all these other teams are trying to do by matching superstars. They're a good, solid team that was pretty good last year. They weren't that good record-wise, but they played good basketball last year. Came into this year with almost the same group, older, better, and they do have one all-star centerpiece. So they're the... 2004 Pistons, whereas the Warriors are the A little Lakers. bit. The Pistons were better. The Pistons are kind of underrated in terms of, I mean, they got three or four guys that are going to be in the Hall of Fame. Right. I don't know if, they're a little bit like maybe that Dallas team that beat the Heat in LeBron's first year in Miami. They don't, I don't know if Jokic is quite as great all-time as Dirk, but right. in the context of this season, he's about as effective as Dirk was. They have other good players. Even that team had maybe more stars than this, Dallas, than this uh, Denver team. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk some more Bills. Uh, Take a look at that offensive line that everybody knows needs to get rebuilt. And compare it with what the New England Patriots did with their unit that made it through the postseason with one sack allowed. And uh, you take a look at it, and uh, it's not as though they invested a ton. We can take a look at what the Bills can learn from that when we come back on the Tim Graham Show here on Sports Radio 1270 The Fan. Graham Show. Tim Graham Show. This is Sports Radio 1270. The Fan. I know I'm going to get pimped. I love sausage. Thank you, Tim. Shocking. Dizzying. How did this happen? When I bring the lumber. The Tim Graham Show. I did old, uh, some poll uh, over the weekend. Right. Not me so honia. Yeah. 
Here we go. On Twitter at 1270 The Fan. Taking your calls at 270-1270. Here we go. The Tim Graham Show. Welcome back to the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by Viola Cummings and Lindsay, your workers' compensation and personal injury attorneys. Call 285-9555. Visit them on the web at violacummingslindsay.com. So far, we've talked about the Bills and their problems that they're going to have recruiting and free agency, and it's not just the weather. You can uh, check out uh, the first hour of the show, in fact, the entire show, on Periscope. Uh, we've retweeted that out. Uh, it's on my account, Jonah Bronstein. He's the filmer of such periscopes. Check out his Twitter feed at LeBronstein. Who's that in reference to? LeBronstein. I don't get it. Are you kidding? LeBron James. <laughs> and me. That's my last name, Bronstein. Oh, okay. I get it. That's clever. I get it. Mike Rodak of ESPN.com's here. Given his usual slant on things, milk rodent. Can we talk Not to be confused? Can we talk about that? <laughs> we probably shouldn't. I mean, it's it's an active and ongoing investigation. Okay, we won't then. Bobby Rosati is handling the production of this show as he does every week. No. What was that? No, sorry. That was a no. Tom Brady saying no. Oh. How about the uh, the post game scrum around Tom Brady? Oh. I was there, and I need, I want, I'm doing. You were a, on the field for that? No, 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 oh. no, not on the field. I was after the the back in the back in the news conference area oh. is where I was. No, I was not on the field. That looked like almost a dangerous situation. Somebody it might did. Get Tracy Wolfson looks. She disappeared in the <laughs> sea of humanity. Had to stand with Tom. See, not to be the token Tom Brady defender, as many expect me to be, but there was people who were going after Tom Brady for not giving Tracy Wolfson enough attention after that. (laughs) He was protecting her, if anything. He was trying to, like, calm the masses down. Like, uh, doesn't strike me as, as, like, he's going to be rude. I mean... He was rude. I remember I was covering a Tom Brady Best Buddies event. He has, like, a charity bike race. I was on Cape Cod. This was probably six or seven years ago. And you were there as a guest? No. You were were his best buddy? I'm not going to laugh Little Mikey Rodak was there. That's insensitive. Uh, But I was there as a member of the media. I remember it was, like, a weird weather day, and there was, like, some storm or windstorm that blew in, like, right towards the end of the race when he was there. There was a bunch of kids around and started pouring. And uh, so we were under, like, a tent. And... uh, it wasn't a good place to be. I remember Tom. Did you pitch this tent <laughs> when you saw Tom Brady? No, nah, that would probably be bigger than most tents. Um, yeah. Uh, it was a pretty big tent that was pitched. and <laughs> Right? You have just completely knocked me off here. <laughs> and there was a bunch of kids that were stuck like in the rain, and he was trying to tell us, like, all right, guys, like I think – you know, we got to find a better place to go here. And he was trying to herd everybody along to a different spot. And it seemed like he was a pretty nice guy. I don't think he was rude or anything about it. And point being, as I have been interrupted here, is I, I don't think like he was trying to blow off Tracy Wolfson. I, I think he was trying to talk to guys who – but there was people on Twitter who were saying, like, oh, typical Brady. Like, <laughs> come on. Like, 
and yeah. I got into this last week. He's I so think mean. some of that has just gotten like so overboard. Yeah, with Brady and with the Patriots, and like I get it, I understand like why people don't want them to win, but the the level of like hatred and I, I saw some tweets of this letting week. it impact your life to that yeah. degree. People saying like if you could choose, you know, for Tom Brady to never exist. Like, would you choose that? People are like, of course. Like, I hope he dies tomorrow or something. Jesus like, Christ. Why? Like, it's, it's just, a strange, yeah, like, yeah. feeling to it's have. It's disturbing, really, honestly. It's, you saw so much of it this week and then – or this week and, and last week as well before the game. And it's just strange. That's all it is. So what about his offensive line? Let's They're talk about great. that. So let's take a look at the New England Patriots offensive line that gave up one sack – in the entire postseason, and think as I rattle off these names and where they came from and their draft positioning, if they were drafted at all, what would prevent the Bills from assembling or finding talent in these places? Left tackle Trent Brown. He was a seventh-round draft pick of the San Francisco 49ers in 2015, and the Patriots made a deal in last year's draft that moved them back 48 spots from late in the third round to early in the fifth and picked up Trent Brown, which at the time people were thinking, big deal. Trent Brown, seventh-round pick. Well, he's the left tackle and one of the most important players on that entire offense because that's what a left tackle is in the NFL. Left guard Joe Tooney, a third-round pick in 2016. Center David Andrews, undrafted. In the 2015 class, right guard Shaq Mason, a fourth round pick in 2015, right tackle Marcus Cannon, a fifth round pick in 2011. So nobody on that offensive line was drafted earlier than the third round. And two of them, arguably the two most important positions on an offensive line, your starting center and your starting left tackle, undrafted and a seventh round pick. Yeah, and it hasn't been often that the Bills or the the Patriots rather have spent high draft picks on offensive linemen. They did it in 2011 with Nate Solder, who was a very good left tackle for them for a while. They did it in 2005 with Logan Mankins, who started at left guard for a while. And then there's a couple, Adrian Clem, if you go back to Belichick's first draft in the second round, he was kind of a bust. But generally it's been the later round finds whether it's been you know Dan Copen their center from 2003 to 2011 who was a fifth round pick um you know free agents who they picked up you know Joe Andrusi who was undrafted and then uh started for five seasons for the Patriots from 2000 2004 Stephen Neal who was a college wrestler who they convert converted into a uh a starting offensive lineman in the NFL um Matt Light so I is it just the second the, round pick? But. Is it just identifying the talent? Yeah, it's identifying well, the it's, piece that fits. Dante Scarnecchia, I think, plays a huge part right. in that. The offense, having the right. same offensive line coach true, for twenty true. years. Dante Scarnecchia is the offensive line coach of the New England Patriots that a lot of people think should be among the next assistant coaches that would go into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Now, as of right now, Dick LeBeau is the only assistant coach in the Hall of Fame. Although Dick LeBeau was also a Pro Bowl player. Uh, for the Detroit Lions back in the day. So people kind of smash the two things together. Right. So is there a true offensive 
or excuse me, assistant coach in the NFL. Yeah, Dick LeBeau, I guess. But Dante Scarnecchia is a, a name that gets mentioned. Wade Phillips, of course, his name has come up a couple of times. Buddy Ryan. Yeah, there are some uh, assistant he was a head coach. coach. Yeah. So briefly, Dante. But does Dante Scarnecchia have any kind of special sauce that nobody else can come up with? Because you can look at what Dante Scarnecchia is up to right. by watching film, by looking at practices, and these coaches even compare notes. I had a chance to chat with Dante Scarnecchia uh, at the Super Bowl, uh, the we leading up to the Super Bowl, and I was talking to him about Jim McNally, the UB legend who went on to be an offensive line coach, most notably with the Cincinnati Bengals when Anthony Munoz was there. And Dante Scarnecchia telling me about the things that Jim McNally was doing that made offensive line coaches at the time wonder, what the hell is this guy up to? Because he was doing things, he'd taken such a fresh approach to how to coach offensive line. And so this is back in the 80s. So really, these guys share enough. I mean, what, what can Dante Scarnecchia possibly be doing that's getting these guys, these spare parts in in many ways, or afterthoughts, getting them together year after year for almost 20 years and getting them to play in an elite level. Just a good coach. He has that Marine background. He's he's always been hard driving. I remember watching the practices, and he's very technical. He's very precise. He wants guys to do things you know, the perfect way, and Sometimes that works for coaches. Sometimes it doesn't. I think Doug Marone's probably cut from the same cloth where he wanted his offensive lineman to be very technical, but just his delivery might be different. Uh, meanwhile, your esteemed colleague Matthew Fairburn does point out that Isaiah Wynn, they drafted in the first round this year. But to my credit, I, we were talking about that before the show, that I think um, – Trent Brown is going to be a free agent this offseason. More than likely, he's going to sign somewhere else. And I think the Patriots will plug in Isaiah Wynn, who's missed all of this season with a torn Achilles at left tackle, and they probably won't miss a beat, you know, given the way things have, have gone for them. So uh, they have spent some first-round picks, a couple second-round picks here and there. But to your point, Tim, it is still a line where they are able to find guys – in the mid to late rounds, undrafted college wrestlers, et cetera. I mean, they're not, there's not a, I mean, they've cycled through. If you go back the last 18 years that they've been good or been at this level, they've probably gone through 10 right tackles. I mean, Marcus Cannon's been in there for a little while now, but before that, it was almost one every couple of years. Yeah, with the, without, with the exception of Marcus Cannon, this line was put together within the past three seasons. Uh, 2015 for the right guard in the center, Shaq Mason and David Andrews. 2016 for the left guard, Joe Tooney. And the left tackle, Trent Brown, was acquired in last year's draft um, as in a trade from the San Francisco 49ers. So that's, you know, that's four of your five guys just in the span of three years. So that's a pretty quick turnaround, I think, and to be able to put together a unit that is can lead you to a Super Bowl. The other thing about them is it always seems... Back-to-back Super Bowls. Uh, yeah. The the Patriots always seem to be drafting linemen just sometimes for the sake of drafting them. Like They may not need somebody on their 53-man roster or have a spot or plan on playing that player right away. But in the mid-rounds, like it seems like you always see them pick some no-name offensive linemen. Um, and sometimes they miss. I mean, in, Antonio Garcia, for instance, a third-round pick of the Patriots in 2017, he had some health issues. 
uh, blood clots in his lungs, but never really played it down for the Patriots. Third round pick two years ago. Um, Trey Jackson is another one, a guard. Uh, maybe four or five years ago, who they drafted and almost never played for them, had some knee issues too. Uh, they miss on guys uh, a decent amount. And um, let's not overlook the obvious point, too, when you talk about how great the offensive line is. They are in front of Tom Brady. I wanted and, to jump in with that. Yes. He's the secret sauce. His ability to read the defense, change the blocking call, get rid of the ball quickly, know where the pressure is coming, evade it. I, I think quarterbacks – Getting sacked is a quarterback stat as much as more than an offensive lineman stat. Maybe, yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't know if I want to say it more than, but that could be true. And you saw that with Ryan Fitzpatrick when he was in Buffalo, he almost never got sacked. The next year, and I'm forgetting who replaced him, but with a different, with almost the same offensive line, he got sacked a lot more. EJ Manuel. Yeah, it's uh, of course the quarterback plays a bit. So you're looking at major role in that time before pass. In the NFL last season for each quarterback, this is a stat that ESPN tracks. Out of 33 starting quarterbacks in the NFL, there's a team with two in there. I'd have to check which. But Tom Brady ranks 29th, meaning he had the fifth fastest time before his pass or passes, 2.61 Meaning seconds. the protection wasn't all that great? Meaning he got rid of the ball quickly, meaning there was probably, by definition, less of a chance to get sacked. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Do you know who had the longest time before pass this season? Josh Allen, uh, at I mean, two one-hundredths of a second longer than anybody else, which in this range is a lot of time. Well, it's because he's running. Exactly. Russell Wilson, though, number two. Deshaun Watson, number three. Jared Goff, number four. So he's not like he's in bad company, but if you're talking about sack numbers, um, you're going to take a lot of sacks the longer you hold the ball. And as far as sacks per drop back, Brady had the fourth fewest this season, 3.5% of his dropbacks he was sacked. Josh Allen was actually higher earlier in the season before his injury. I think he had the highest rate in the league. Um, he finished the season around 10th highest at 7.2%. Josh Allen did a much better job post-injury or post-injury recovery of um, getting rid of the ball, but also – not just getting rid of the ball quickly, but if he was on the run, I think he did a much better job of being able to throw the ball away or get the ball out somehow rather than take the hit. All right. When we maybe during the break we can take a look and see of the the quarterbacks who got rid of the ball the fastest, which ones had really good slot receivers. When we come back on the Tim Graham show here on Sports Radio twelve seventy the fan. Is Sports Radio 1270 the fan? The Tim Graham Show. You're a young athlete. You're brimming with confidence. You're, I don't know if you're single or not. Are you single? On Twitter at 1270 The Fan. The Tim Graham Show. Now on Sports Radio 1270 The Fan. And on the Fans app. Free to download in the App Store. The Tim Graham Show. Now on Sports Radio 1270 The Fan. I really hear voices in my head. Yes, we all hear voices in our head. I can hear the voices in my head again. Sports Radio 1270, 1270. The Fan. And on the Fans app. Free to download in the App Store. Now back to the Tim Graham Show. I think I'm about to do myself a favor. Welcome back to the Tim Graham Show on Sports Radio 1270 The Fan. I am Tim Graham of The Athletic. 
here by the good grace of Viola Cummings and Lindsay, your workers' compensation and personal injury attorneys. Call 285-9555. Visit them on the web at violacummingslindsay.com. If University at Buffalo men's basketball coach Nate Oates were to hold a state of the organization, a state of the program, program. news conference, what is it? A speech? Like what a, did, yeah, what is that? It would be a 30-minute special is it an on address? Channel 4. That's what it would be. Hey, it's content. Yeah. State of the Union address, right? It's an address, yeah. So a state of the program address, what would Nate Oates, and if he's being honest, Jonah, what would you say would come out of Nate Oates' mouth about where his team stands? I think if you were to talk to him today, a few days, you know, they lost on Friday night at Bowling Green, he'd be pretty positive about overall the way they've played all season long. They're healthy. Uh, Guys really aren't slumping except some free throw shooting issues they've been having. But he would say they didn't play very good defense. Played their, maybe their worst defense of the season the other night at Bowling Green, especially in the second half. They missed a lot of free throws. That's becoming a trend. In conference games, they're the worst free throw shooting team in the MAC. And I think he would say that they need to be better. They can't, they can't go have stretches where they lose two, two out of four games for the rest of the season and be an at-large bid team, which was their goal coming in and something they've pretty much attained and could – give away now if they lose too many more games but I don't think he would or anybody around UB would have a sky is falling type attitude they're still a very good team they're still in the top 25 they're still the best team in the MAC their offense was very good at Bowling Green or good enough but their defense had carried them to a lot of wins this year when they weren't shooting the ball well and they happened to lose a game when they did shoot it somewhat well and that's a little bit of a little bit discouraging if that's a trend. But you're not going to play your best basketball every single night. What do you think it is, Jonah? Is it laziness, uh, lack of focus, all this type of stuff? They're clearly athletic, and they're good enough to be dominant in any phase of the game. They should be. They they have the best talent in the Mid-American Conference yeah. by far. But there are games, and it includes the one against Northern Illinois where they seem to get distracted or not care about playing defense. Yeah, it's not laziness. They play hard. They emphasize defense. They have guys who are great defenders, Dante Carruthers, Devontae Jordan. They do lack some interior defense, shot blocking, and just overall size. They play kind of a small, offense-oriented lineup, which is why I've been so impressed with their defense throughout most of the season because they, you know, their defense is rated as high as their offense almost in the per-possession efficiency, and at one point last week it was rated higher. They haven't had too many nights like they had the other night at Bowling Green. I think on the road, in conference play, conference schools, they know you. They know your defense. They know your personnel. They know where to attack and and how to exploit your weaknesses. Every team, even the best teams, have weaknesses. But I think what happened at Bowling Green is they might have thought they had that game won. I can't remember exactly what their lead was, but it was something like 12 or 14. And in basketball, you can feel like, all right, we got this game we just kind of got to play out the string, and you do that a little too early against a team that's trying hard to come back, and you can't just snap your fingers and get it back. And I think that's what happened to him the other night. So let's take a look at – let's spin this forward because they've had their two roughest losses uh, on the road, of course. Uh, they're not going to be playing the Mid-American Conference Tournament at home. This gets played in Cleveland, mm-hmm. close enough to bring your fans – 
close enough for some of these other schools to bring their fans too. Now Closer. they don't. Closer for most of these other schools. Yeah, that's true. They don't generally, unless it's a Kent, um, Akron. Uh, it has to be the ones that are really close. Uh, I would not assume that UB would be facing a uh, a road type atmosphere in Cleveland. There's going to be enough UB fans that make the trip to watch these tournament games. Uh, so it's going to at least be even, I would think. But on this neutral floor uh, at Quicken Loans Arena, what do you think, I guess, what does that suggest to you in terms of they're not at home, but it's not technically a road game? Is that something they're going to have to cope with, uh, or will that be a big detriment for them winning the tournament? I don't know how it could be much of a detriment. They've won three of the last four there. And I think, trying to think of how these games have gone, nine of ten games that would be. So they, they play well in that arena, in that setting. They, are, they have been the more talented team probably in every one of those games, and they're able to exploit that. And They're one of the best road neutral teams in the country right now. I don't think they've lost on a neutral floor. All their losses have come on the road. So playing in Cleveland on Only three floor, losses, right? Only three losses. Marquette, Northern Illinois, right. Bowling Green. Yeah, and they're 2-0, and I believe, on neutral floor. So I think that's a better situation than going on the road in the conference. They probably have more of an advantage in Cleveland than they do in some of these gyms with the home crowds. And Now what they're getting is not just every team's best shot, but they're getting they're playing full gyms. Bowling Green had a capacity crowd, might have been even been a record crowd on campus, and there's just a lot of energy in the building to upset this team. Not that they're overrated, but I think another Mac school looks not at it. Not necessarily says, an upset. It's a rarity for these schools to have a ranked team on their campus. Right. So the kids get together and just say, Hey, let's go it says this is an event. That's not necessarily you know they're there for and it would be anybody. I, I I think I saw that Bowling Green. It's the first time in school history that they've hosted a ranked opponent. Right. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I don't think I wouldn't look at anything that's happened with UB lately and and have concerns about how they can perform at the MAC tournament. Then again, it's a single elimination tournament. Anybody can get beat if the other team has a hot night or you don't play your best basketball, three games and three nights, an injury, something like that. The concern with UB is how many more losses can they take and still be an automatic at large? I think if the tournament ends today, they're automatically in. If they lost one more game, they're probably automatically in. What makes you think that, Joan? Is that a feel, or are you looking at some uh, – I mean, what makes you no, say I, that you think they'd still be in at large if they don't win the tournament? It's, it's their win profile, the wins that they've had at Syracuse, neutral floor against San Francisco, the – Quadrant one wins, if you will. West Virginia, which actually one of the things that's hurting UB right now is that West Virginia is below 500. I think they're, they're the worst team in the, in the Big 12 yeah, right two now. Yeah, 2-8 and eight in the Big 12, yeah. and that's not helping. They don't get any credit for the fact that West Virginia was ranked at the time. Well, they do get some credit because West Virginia playing in the Big 12 and their record from non-conference, I think that makes it a quadrant two win. But it, it's on the fence, I believe, for even that. It's based on what happens at the end of the year, yeah. sure. where they are. And these net rankings, now they're not. the committee isn't going to just straight look at the net rankings and say, oh, you're 22 in the net, you're the 22nd seeded team in the tournament. But it is a factor in looking at who you beat and where you are, and I don't think a team that's that high in the net rankings is going to get left out of the tournament. They might be seeded lower than you might think, and I think that's what's happening with UB now. They were a team that was pushing in a four, five, six seed range and might not get seeded that highly now. Yeah, so right now... Uh, Joe Lenardi at ESPN did his latest bracket yesterday, the 5th. He has UB as a 6th seed 
in Tulsa playing in Levinson Lipscomb. Uh, not as that's still encouraging though because I think they were a six seed before this recent right. loss. Right, that's his that's even. That's uh, not an upper or down in that latest bracket. However, Fox Sports with Howie Schwab. This is February third. It looks like I think it's still post Bowling Green loss. Has UB down to a ten seed, uh, playing seven seed Mississippi State, and then there's a couple others out there. Jerry Palm. With CBS has him as a seven seed as well, playing Wofford in Des Moines, and then if you look at USA Today, has them as a seven seed, playing in Salt Lake City against Arizona State, a ten seed. So it seems like the consensus right now is probably around that seven seed. But the thing is, I mean, you're not there's not much room to go down from there because once you get into the eleven, maybe. 12 seed, those are all the minor conference winners. So another loss probably slides them down into eight or nine seed range. And then you're starting to talk about last four in at that point. If you get down to nine, 10 seed. I, th- I think there's two losses experience. away from being maybe in that bubble or, or falling into that kind of seed line. If you're an eight or nine seed, you're probably not a bubble team. Those are usually for at larges, 11, 12 seeds. Yeah, 10, one thing, 10, one 11. thing that's helping UB is that the MAC is rated as a top 10 league this year. Part of that's because of how well UB's played. But there's other good teams. Toledo is, I think, in top 60 in the net. Ken Palm, that's a game UB plays there next Friday. That could be a quadrant one win for them if, if Toledo still keeps winning the way they have. 57. In, yeah, and in other that. MAC wins look a lot better than they have in the past. You know, the Toledo athletic director is on the NCAA selection committee this year. That's something that could work in Buffalo's favor. West Virginia down to 101 in the net. Syracuse slipping from 42 to 47 in the net this week. And you said San Francisco was their other big win. San Francisco at 48. So right there yeah, is Syracuse. So San Francisco and uh, Syracuse are on probably. the border. Let's think- take let's take a spin around the rest of the Western New York basketball programs. Where where are we with some of these, Jonah? Uh, none of just them are quick, playing quick that great. Well, I don't mean where they games, are in terms really. of the tournament. Just where are they in... Um, and let's even well, our even our good friend Mike McDonald and what he's doing at oh, Damon they're and, they're, they're and Nate Butel well. uh, at uh, NCCC. So you have just to cut in, you have 353 teams in the net rankings that are D1. Canisius right now is sitting at 267. You have Niagara at 302, and you have the Bonnies at 160. All right. Just to give yeah, you an idea, Canisius is also not played their best player the last two games for conduct detrimental to the team. Pretty much benched him for three-fourths of the Niagara game before that. Won one game without him. Isaiah Reese, preseason MAC player of the year. They're struggling. Niagara's not winning. Bonner's in a rebuilding year. See, now I was down in Atlanta for the Super Bowl. What was the conduct detrimental? It hasn't really come out. And I wasn't at any of these games. I do think my guess, and from the little bit I've heard, I think it was some sort of verbal... I don't know if it was between Reese and Coach Wade Witherspoon or Reese and another player, but I think it was something that was said. Now, Canisius is only one game out of first place. Yeah, and Canisius can turn around. The, the, the Mac's terrible this year, so you don't really need to be a great team to win the Mac. Ryder's the best team and, and probably will win the league, but you know, Canisius is still in the mix. The season's not over, but you got your best player not playing and maybe disgruntled and they're, they're a little thin after their top two guys. Yeah, Kanisha's been better. Kanisha's was better the last two seasons under Reddy Witherspoon than they are right now. All right, one more segment. When we come back, we're going to talk about, you know what? We're going to talk about more sports.
Go and geek some. We could do a whole segment on Damon. Yeah, well, yeah. that's right. That's what we're going to get into. No, we're not going to do that. We're going to talk some more bills. We're going to talk a little bit more NBA trade deadline before we uh, punch the time clock here on the Tim Graham Show on Sports Radio 1270 The Fan. The show is brought to you by Viola Cummings and Lindsay, your workers' compensation and personal injury attorneys. Call 285-9555. Visit them on the web at violacummingslindsay.com. This is the Tim Graham Show. Other than it's a silly, I'm doing the wanking motion right here. It's a silly, it's a waste of time. Obviously, it's an entertaining thought to the people here in Buffalo and to everybody else around the country because it's stupid. Take more calls. You want to call in and talk about uh, and defend this or any other silliness? Taking your calls at 270-1270. Tim Graham Show. Sports Radio 1270. The Fan. Or is something, I'm going to pop the old stuff out and put my stuff in it. <laughs> the Tim Graham Show. Anywho. Sports Radio 1270, The Fan. Hey, Bobby, on that part of that uh, intro yeah. where I'm struggling, is it, was I laughing or was I trying to, <laughs> I was I like about to cough or something? I think I was, you're, you're trying to, you're either, yeah, you're trying to cough, you're trying to clear your throat. I was trying to, I think yeah. I was trying to talk through a, and I, yeah, I was to, about just to get to break. Yeah. And I, I knew right away, I was like, yeah, I need that. It's good times. <laughs> Tim Graham shows, uh, Right here on Sports Radio 1270, The Fan. I am Tim Graham of The Athletic here with my co-host, Mike Rodak of ESPN.com, Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein Enterprises, and Bobby Rosati of uh, Cumulus Radio. Sign fell down today. Did you notice that? The sign on the front. Oh, I thought you building. said something about yeah. Seinfeld. Yeah, no, no, no. The, uh, I thought you said, it's Seinfeld now. It's There's a Cumulus Radio sign on the front of our building here that... It felt like it, it's gone. Like it was here last week and it is no longer here. <laughs> oh, I don't know I didn't if it got that. iced over or blown Maybe. away or just we had, taken down. We did have a rough few days. I'll have yeah. to look. No, instead there's a pole. Requires no decoration. I'm finding my way over here today. Uh, What's left to talk about? We usually have Joel Staniszewski in this segment, but Joel is uh, now on hiatus until uh, the next football game is played. Well, I think we should ask Bobby Rosati what he's vaping today. A little bit of watermelon and uh, butterscotch. Uh, Very, that uh, does not. Not good. That does not sound like a good mixture. No, what do you, What do you think of Hawaii wanting to raise the minimum smoking age to 100? What? You see that? Is that a real thing? Yeah. So apparently it's not constitutional or there's legal trouble if they tried to ban smoking altogether. Yeah. Like cigarette smoking. So what they're trying to do, apparently, is raise the age, like over the next five years, from 21, where it is now, to like 40 to 60 and eventually to 100. And in their minds, that will survive the legal challenges by not banning smoking, but it will eradicate it in their minds. Uh, nonsense. I, I Honestly, I think a lot of it's overblown. I, the, big, the big deal with the e-cigs, though, is... The kids that are using them now in school, and I, I, I didn't start till I was, you know, twenty one, so I, I didn't have that problem. But it's not good. I'm sure we're gonna find out something down the road where it's like, oh, you know, it's not that much better. But in the meantime, I, I don't know. It's it's just kind of silly. But 
Kids shouldn't be using them, that's for sure. <laughs> Today is National that. Girls and Women in Sports Day. I don't have much of a follow-up on that, but... <laughs> well, let's give some equal time. What's going on that's with right. UB women's basketball? They're playing well. They play tonight at home. Coach Jack is upset about their defensive play lately. I know that. I believe they have two conference losses. I think they... Waiting for the schedule load here. They lost the first one, won six in a row, lost the last one. They're not like the men's team really in position for a at-large bid as they were last year, I don't think. They don't have quite as strong of a non-conference performance, but they still could win the MAC tournament. 14-5, and 6-2 and two in the MAC. Uh, they lost to Central Michigan last Saturday. They also had the loss earlier in their schedule to Ohio. Their next game is tonight. Against Toledo. Bill's season ticket prices are going up. A uh, friend of the show, Jay Skursky of the Buffalo News, uh, has a story on the website uh, regarding the Bill's uh, season ticket holder price. So this isn't the game by game. This is if you are a season ticket holder, that the average ticket is going up $1.85. Doesn't sound like a lot. And really, in the grand scheme of things, isn't going to make the Pagoulas that much more money. Um, Sounds yeah. to me like general inflation. The inflation yeah. rate in the U.S. in 2018 was 2.44%. So what's the increase there? 2.11%. So actually the tickets prices are going down. Well, no, they're actually going up. In, they're just, in it's relation just less, to inflation, they're going it's down. It's not as high as inflation. They're not going down, though. They still went up 2.11%. It's all relative. It is. I took economics in college. But a total of 7,700 seats at New Era Field are going to go down from 8 to $22 a seat. And uh, Jay Skursky reporting this from an email that was sent uh, to season ticket holders. So nice little scoop there. Uh, and something that gets fans worked up, the mm-hmm. price of the ticket, because they just see it's going up, the team got worse, I hate this stuff. They're going to go to the games anyway. The team was more exciting at 6-10. and 10. They have their new quarterback. They have this, all this money they're going to be spending on free agents, hopefully, if things go well for them. I don't it's think a team ever, on the rise. Did they ever put out a season ticket number last season? Because I know they were promoting it heavily you know, during the Rex Ryan years when they had the 60,000 and they had the mural, or they still do, on the tunnel wall with all the names of the 60,000 season ticket holders. I think the general consensus was that those numbers – declined a little bit i don't ever remember seeing a number but one of the reasons why that may be is that the guy who used to give out that number is russ brandon yeah and uh so maybe just nobody thought to ask Mm. this year but i don't know where they went with season tickets in terms of what their final what their total was heading into this year i would think that drafting the young exciting quarterback it would go up they were coming off a playoff season people buying in a little bit more into what Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean are trying to accomplish. So I would think heading into this year, they probably was they were solid. I think 2017 might have been where there was a dip coming off the, the Rex year and then coming into Sean McDermott where I think people were guarded about what would happen that year. Sure. Some obviously fatigue about Terod Taylor at that point. Very good recovery on Terod Taylor. I have because to think about I it. I do too. It's like signing my checks with a 2018 or a 2019. I mean, nobody does. He's irrelevant for the moment. I mean, he might get some free agent. I don't think interest. he's out of the league. I don't think no, he's, he's going to retire. But I mean, it'll be him, Joe Flacco, Kevin Cobb, Kevin Cobb, Nick Foles. 
picking my wrong Eagles quarterback, who will be, uh, you know, sort of the AJ Feely, AJ Feely, Jay Fiedler, um, Chad Kelly. Yeah, I don't think he will be around. But those will be the quarterbacks he might be. who will. He might be around. Be floating around. I wouldn't scratch Chad Kelly just yet. I mean, the thing with Chad Kelly obviously needed to be cut for what he did. But what he did in the grand that's a lot picture, of chances to give a guy. Well, it's only one NFL chance, and yeah. I think somebody will look at the talent and maybe give him another but shot, put him on a short leash. Other chances. He needs to go to one of these other leagues, play yeah. well there, let some time pass. I would agree with that. And then get his second chance after that. But I think that will happen. And there's going to be a few of those. There's a spring league, which is coming back. They'll probably Johnny look Minzel pretty good in at. these leagues. There's the, the XFL. The XFL, which is going to probably hire Bob Stoops, it sounds like, this week for their Dallas team. And then I think there's the most organized one right now, which is the Alliance of American Football. i got to get the uh, initials mm-hmm. right there. But they're starting their season. I saw billboards when I was in weekend. Orlando three, for uh, um, Steve Spurrier. There's three a, former UB players playing in that. Uh, you know, Matt our, Weiser. Our friend Matt Weiser, yep. Brandon Oliver, John Kling, who's from Depew. They, they seem to have their stuff together a little bit better. Um, I mean, there's eight teams. There's a team in Birmingham. Um, and they have a, a TV deal. Now, part of that's because they have, uh, I mean, Ebersol. I forgot, Dick. I got to get the right one. The CBS guy who. It's Charlie. Charlie, Charlie I'm Dick, sorry. Dick's son, Charlie. Right. Dick is departed, right? Who got And some, Bill Polian. Yeah, they have some names behind it. I mean, granted, the XFL has McMahon and they have Oliver Luck, but the Alliance has TV contracts with CBS. I mean, they're going to have games on a national broadcast network, which is crazy considering the level of talent, but they're also going to have games on um, the NFL Network. They had assigned a deal, I think, last week, and Bleacher Report Live and some other places. Uh, Dick Ebersol is not dead, lest anyone okay. think that Dick Ebersol is dead. I, I, I find so he's I involved with things. this this league, the, the AAC, is it? The Alliance of American Football, uh, the AAF. All right, because he was involved with the original XFL. Yes, kind of interesting. He's competing yeah. against that now. Now he's competing, competing in a manner of speaking against the XFL. I think their marketing will be a little bit different. Well, but they both can't survive. I don't think. <sighs> Probably not. I mean. The XFL is probably going to have to brand itself like it did 20 years ago, almost, where it was you know, the Outlaw League and there's but different the rules. initial marketing is that they're not going to do that. All right, so there are eight teams. Bit. Let's just give a rundown, just so there is some credibility here with the coaching staff and the size of the markets. Atlanta is coached by Kevin Coyle. Birmingham by Tim Lewis. And you're thinking, okay, Tim, where's the credibility? All right, there's, here's some names you know. Memphis. Head coach Mike Singletary, Orlando head coach Steve Spurrier, and then in the Western Conference, or Arizona is coached by Rick Neuheisel, Salt Lake by Dennis Erickson, San Antonio by Mike Riley, and San Diego by Mike Martz. So those are some coaches of distinction of some. You know, like they're not in the NFL anymore, so it's not like they're the but there's NFL creme de la creme. I mean, Kevin sure. Coyle was the defensive coordinator of the Dolphins. Mike and- Martz took a team to the Super Bowl. They're originally Atlanta was supposed to be coached by Brad Childress, who then um, backed out of that. And uh, they still have Michael Vick as their offensive coordinator, though, in Atlanta. Who would yeah. you take first in your AAF fantasy football draft? Chad Kelly. I don't I'm know. looking Who's at a available? cheat sheet right here. Pro Football Focus has it. Trent Richardson, number one running back. I see. Denard Robinson, 
Zach Stacy. Now, CBS Sports did power rankings for your AAF teams this week, in case you were wondering. The uh, number one in their power rankings are the Arizona Hotshots. Then the Orlando Apollos. Hotshots. Hotshots. San Antonio Commanders, Salt Lake Stallions, Atlanta Legends, Birmingham Iron, San Diego Fleet. And at the bottom of the barrel, the Memphis Express. All right, then. Here we are. I like this stuff. I like minor league football, and I think it's good for the NFL because, and this is a thing that I talked to Buddy Nix about when I was doing my work for uh, the story on what the Bills must do to scrape along because you don't always get those free agents. So what the Bills have to do are things like get guys on waivers, try to find value on waivers through trades, um, undrafted free agents, you know, undrafted rookies, there are ways that you have to get players to come to you where they don't have the leverage, where they don't have to, they don't get to pick. And one of the other ways that he said that the Bills would find good value was through the NFL Europe or the different minor leagues. I mean, going back, of course, to pre-free agency when the Bills capitalized on the USFL maybe more than any other team in the NFL. That's where they got Bill Polian. It's where they got Marv Levy. It's where they got a bunch of their, you know, uh, Scott Norwood comes out of the USFL. Um, of course, Jim Kelly, even though he was a draft pick, but offensive linemen, defensive. I mean, there were guys all on both sides of the ball that had this, that were not ready for the NFL, but then went off and made themselves bona fide professional football players. And so these leagues are really going to help out the NFL. There's a need for that because there isn't a minor league system as there is in all the other major sports. I mean, there's a lot of players who you talk to, or you just kind of know. I mean, look, there's guys around here that we all know who have a couple weeks maybe of, of training camp in the NFL to prove themselves. They're on a 90-man roster. They get a few reps at practice. They get a few reps in preseason games, and that's their only chance. And there's a lot of guys who just say, you know, give me a chance to put some tape out there, uh, develop myself, get some coaching at, at, a, at a higher level. And maybe we can develop players. So in the past, to be in football shape when the NFL camps come around. Yes, and that's the difference here is that when the USFL is around, and granted, I wasn't alive, but even the XFL twenty years ago, it seemed as though they were trying to compete against the NFL and become another major league. That's not really the case here. The AAF certainly seems to be designing itself as a league that. Guys can get experience in the the off season. In fact, their schedule is designed that way. Their first games are this weekend, the week after the Super Bowl, and their season ends the week when off season programs begin in the NFL. So it gives them a chance to be in shape if a team does want to sign. So I I did ask Brandon Bean at the end of the season press conference if he will be taking a look at some of these leagues, uh, specifically the AAF, and he said we're still feeling that out because it's so new, but we are going to pay attention to it. It looks like it's being set up and run well. There's guys that are on rosters that are going to go over there that are on practice squads. I'm interested to see what it looks like. You can't be closed-minded. I think you have to be open-minded and keep an eye on it. If you spend X number of dollars, but you find one player out there that can produce, it becomes a worthwhile investment. In fact, I heard back on that from um, the senior administrator of player personnel from the AAF who was interested in that quote and I think was – appreciative that you know the bills were um putting some some time and some some energy into it ken hall by the way is a name that i can't 
exclude from that list of USFL players that really benefited the Buffalo Bills. Ken Hall was obviously the one of the premier centers of his era and on the Bills Wall of Fame and uh, maybe doesn't get a shot if not for the USFL. So I think that these minor leagues are going to help. I like watching spring football. I like I've always enjoyed watching preseason football uh, because you're watching guys scratch to get to stay on the roster. I mean, that's where the real fight. That's why Hard Knocks, mm-hmm. when it has been a compelling season on Hard Knocks, it's the guys on the fringe that you get to know and find out whether or not they make the make the final cut are more interesting than whoever the starting quarterback is or the star running back. So um, we do have that to look forward to as Bills uh, people who follow the Bills and to see if uh, the organization can find uh, some players there because they are going to have to work a little harder than everybody else. That's what happens uh, when you're when you're in Buffalo. Well, so you're, you're tying this all the way back to the first segment now. How about that? Almost like I wrote wrote a story. It's the <laughs> it's comprehensive look. Yeah, that's my kicker. And those are going to leave it right at that. Thanks, guys. Another great show. It's good to be back. We're going to do it again next week. For our guest, John Vogel of The Athletic. He covers the Buffalo Sabres. He joined us earlier. For my co-host, Mike Rodak of ESPN.com. For Jonah Bronstein, our videographer of uh, Bronstein Enterprises. And for Bobby Rosati. Knob Diddler extraordinaire. Another MVP performance for him. He gets the game ball on the Tim Graham Show, which is brought to you by Viola Cummings and Lindsay, your workers' compensation and personal injury attorneys. Call 285-9555. Visit them on the web at violacummingslindsay.com. Tim Graham Show, Sports Radio, 1270 The Fan. Sports Radio 1270, The Fan, live sports talk, 24-7.